Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockford. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. For both developed and developing nations, funding and carrying out large-scale public works and services projects often depends upon utilizing public-private partnerships, or PPPs. As the name suggests, PPPs involve a collaborative project between the government and the private sector, often with collaboration starting at the early stages of the project identification and planning through funding and completion. The bidding and awarding of PPPs generally allows for a competitive and transparent process which is important due to the scope and financial scale of the project, as well as avoiding corruption in the use of public funds. PPP projects are generally aligned with national strategic priorities and sustainable development goals. They range from transportation projects, such as airports, railways, highways, and waterways, to energy projects, such as dams, solar, and wind farms, to public health projects, such as preventing and addressing specific diseases and increasing a country's general level of access to healthcare services. Today, we are joined by David Baxter, an independent PPP consultant who started his consulting career in public outreach strategies at the University of Limpopo and the Human Sciences Research Council, HSRC, in South Africa. During this time, he was a regional representative on the World Health Organization's Global Change and Social Transformation Initiative. One focus of the initiative was how to bring affordable healthcare services to rural communities that were being ravaged by HIV. Strategies to improve healthcare access included working closely with traditional leaders in implementation of public health education and scientific evaluations of traditional herbal remedies for illnesses. At the HSRC, he worked closely with aid organizations and donors such as USAID. Currently, he advises public and private institutions all over the world on implementing sustainable and resilient healthcare PPPs. David has worked as a consultant with the World Bank, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, and USAID. His country healthcare collaborations include Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. He is a senior advisor to the International Sustainable Resilience Center in New Orleans, which is affiliated with the UNECE PPP Center of Excellence located in Geneva, and an advisor to the Istanbul PPP Center of Excellence. David is also working with the PPP Healthcare for All Initiative and is a steering committee member of WAPPP, the World Association of PPPs. David, thank you for being with us today. It's a pleasure. David, welcome. Welcome to the show. Um, Jonathan, in, in the intro, provided us with, with a general sketch of, of, of your background and the, the things that you have done. But it would be great if, if we, we could kick things off by having you um, go into a little bit more detail about your career path and specifically how it is that you came to be involved 
or so involved with uh, PPPs? Thank you for asking me that question. I started in um, South Africa about 25 years ago during the post-apartheid era, just when apartheid was ending. And I was lucky enough to start working at the University of Limpopo, where I got involved in a program that had been initiated by Nelson Mandela to ensure that there would be public participation by previously disadvantaged communities in um, the in the development of new strategies to uplift communities within the country. The challenge there that had happened was that many people had been cut off under the rigorous racial laws of South Africa in the past. So it was quite a challenge, but it was a very interesting experience. And I learned that one thing that is really important, that if you are going to do any development, it is critically important that you focus on having um, sort of partnerships which engages people not just people who are launching projects, but also people who are going to be impacted by projects and the importance also of having good partnerships between the public and the private sectors in any country. After that, I moved to the United States and I lived in the state of Utah for a number of years where I worked with um, a company called Booz Allen Hamilton, which you might have all heard of, on the public lands program. And under this program, we worked very closely with the Department of Interior and the US Fish and Wildlife Service to look at concessions on, on resources that were found on public lands in the West. So if you think of Bureau of Land Management Project or lands, the National Park Service, the US Forest Service, the Fish and Wildlife Service, even the Bureau of Reclamation, they all have land which has specific uses or they have resources on that land which could be used. So that introduced me to the, the aspect of concessions, which are kind of a early form of PPPs, many resources and activities that are used on public lands in the Western United States and here on the East Coast do have a um, important, um, how would I describe it, um, important component of reaching out to the private sector to get them to um, extract those resources or to improve resources. And that can be everything from recreation to forestry. The, the list is, is quite long. At the end of that process, I then started getting more and more involved specifically in PPPs, specifically those that um, were related to oil and gas industry activities. And then I slowly progressed you know, towards a situation of working on PPPs as we know them, the structured contractual agreements between the public and the private sector to provide a service or a product or form of infrastructure, such as, you know, hospitals, um, water and power projects, utility projects, etc. And that started taking me all over the world. And that's how I eventually got to the situation of working on PPPs as we know them globally. And to date, if I count correctly, I think I've worked in or with organizations from at least 40 countries. So David, now that you've been ranging around the world working on your PPP projects, can you describe a little more about what they are and why they're an important way uh, that benefit uh, developing and developed nations? So one thing that is really important to point out is that governments around the world have often subscribed to the sustainable development goals as goals for the development of their countries. There are 17 of them, but they include everything from education, healthcare, improving infrastructure, trade. You can go down the list. 
And what has happened is every country, essentially, even if it's a developed country or an emerging economy, has been very concerned about the importance of improving their economies for the benefit of the people. And hence the, you know, the connection with the sustainable development goals. Um, each country has had different priorities. So some countries have been very focused on water projects or sanitation projects in what they call the wash sector. Other countries, you know, have had a greater need to improve their, in their transportation infrastructure. In Africa, one of the most important types of projects is power because so many African um, countries and towns and villages are not connected to any power grid. And the reason why it's very attractive for the public and the private sector to work together is because they can complement one another. Governments are faced with a funding gap. They typically call it a funding gap where they don't have enough money to meet their, um, their sustainable development goals or just their development goals. The private sector, on the other hand, often has financing available. It's also a very innovative um, source where they can introduce innovation. And this forms a wonderful partnership where both parties can work together and complement each other to develop and provide services or infrastructure that the public sector can do on its own. And the result of this has been, in many countries, formalized public-private partnerships um, enabling legislation, which has encouraged it, and which has also enabled participation between the public and the private sectors. You've got to remember that the public and the private sectors are quite different types of organizations. Their cultures are different. Their approaches are different. But what is important is for governments, I think, is that they realize they can have an innovative partnership with the private sector that might take on a lot of the risk that they would have, provide additional financing to help bridge the funding gap, and then run these projects better than governments can because governments really aren't in the business of running projects. They are focused on governing and keeping um, programs on track. David, I'm, I'm old enough to, to remember a time when, when this idea of the PPP started to become very popular or, or at least it, it started uh, becoming um, a commonly heard term in the news. Um, would it be fair to to assume that there's been a sort of steady increase in the popularity of PPPs um, around the world, or is perhaps the picture a little bit more checkered? And we we've had a little bit of back and forth uh, in, in terms of the, the the adoption of the PPP model by countries around the world. That's a good question. Um, Originally, PPPs, as we know them, started uh, largely in the United Kingdom, in the UK, during the time of Margaret Thatcher, when she was very focused on restructuring the economy of the UK and giving the private sector greater involvement. So in, in many instances or aspects, I suppose, it was a political decision. Um, it caused a lot of concern at the beginning because people associated it or assumed it to be um, sort of a form of privatization of assets, which is really important to understand that under public-private partnerships, we don't privatize national assets. PPPs are 20, 30-year agreements where at the end of that agreement, the, the service or the facility reverts back in ownership to the, to the government that owns it all the time. So it was political at first, but there were successes, and so many countries started copying these programs 
the result is that they became extremely popular. Um, the, my home country of South Africa was one of the leaders in public-private partnerships. And the, um, the opening up of opportunities was, I think, what was most attractive. Not all has gone well in countries because sometimes projects weren't really very clearly thought out. Um, the relationship between the public and private sector was misunderstood. Many times governments just thought it would be free money, free resources, and they didn't really realize that PPP projects, even if the government is letting the private sector run them, do have costs and responsibilities. So in many instances, projects weren't monitored, they weren't um, carefully evaluated. Any crazy idea that came across was often put out as a PPP one of the biggest challenges was what I would call white elephant or prestige projects. It really served no purpose, but were done as PPPs. The biggest challenge has been in the sense of um, PPPs has been the, the desire to, um, you know, to, to ensure that there is a revenue flow. And this is critically important because for PPPs to be successful, the operator, which is from the from the private sector, has to have a source of revenue. These can be in the forms of either um, availability payments um, or sort of a compensatory type of activity or revenue, which is raised from projects. And this has been a great challenge because in many instances, there is, um, there is you know, just not enough compensation or revenue streams. And when this happens, a lot of projects have failed. So it's critically important to ensure that projects are going to be well-designed, well-thought-out, are going to offer you what they call value for money and that they are economically and commercially viable because if they're not, these projects will fail. David, could you tell us a little bit about some of the PPP projects you've heard about, some of the you know, famously good projects or famously awful projects? There's good and bad projects um, around the world. So, um, you know, I think... Some of the best projects, obviously, are the ones that are the most needed. So, for example, um, you know, water projects, power projects, um, they generally are going to have a guaranteed source of revenue because people are paying for the power, they're paying for the water. But these projects do often get into difficulty as well because political decisions are made on the pricing per unit of what is being delivered so you do find that in some countries when, for example, with water projects, and this has happened in the Middle East, where even though the, product, the water is produced you know, through large desalinization type projects, for example, the price is heavily subsidized by the government because when you have a, um, you know, desalinization is an expensive process, the water costs a lot. And if you have an, a, a population that can't afford it, they're not going to buy the water. And then that would put the project under a considerable challenge. And so what has happened in um, many Middle Eastern countries where there have been water PPPs, um, as oil revenues have declined, and we've been following this in the news, I'm sure everyone's aware of that, it's not uncommon to have a situation then that governments do not have as much um, money available to subsidize the cost of that water, for example. And then they've increased the water prices, they've increased, which has resulted in the concessionaire or the operator of the water utility having to increase their prices, which then has often resulted in riots and protests and things like that. 
So that, you know, is one thing it has to be considered very carefully. There's a very interesting case also of a PPP project that um, friends of mine in Albania shared with me last year, a highway between the capital Tirana and um, Kosovo, its neighbor, was the road was upgraded and it was um, opened as a public-private partnership. Um, the problem there was that in many instances, the uh, or in many cases, yeah, the communication was very bad and the um, public were not told really that they were going to have to now pay a price to use the road. And even though the toll fee was only five euros for a country like um, um, Albania, where people are pretty poor, as well as in Kosovo, five euros is a big deal. So when the project opened, there were riots, the toll gates were attacked, there was even a burning attempt on some of the toll gates, and the project basically, or the concessionaire could not charge for the use of the of the toll road. And it took quite a while to recover from that and also to ensure that the um, that the um, concessionaire company was compensated for the lost revenue and efforts were made to just ensure that the public did get used to paying the, um, the fee. Last year, I drove on that road to Kosovo and when I went through the toll gates, everyone seemed to be paying and there weren't any, um, what you call it, weird situations or protests or anything along the route. So it looks like they solved it. Um, the types of projects that I think are the most successful in PPPs, I think, have been airport concessions as airports um, have, you know, grown to accommodate the globalization of the world's economy and millions of people are traveling. Now, this is also a story, a good story that's possibly gone wrong because in the COVID period now that we are facing, we have a situation where airports are empty, nothing's moving through them. And you can just think of the ramifications there for the operators of multiple concessions. I had a gentleman talk to me about the Dubai airport and, you know, he was talking about, you know, that they're not getting revenues from planes landing. They're not getting revenues from passengers moving through the massive terminals there. And so as a result is that everything has come to a dead standstill and there's a big danger for the airport, you know, to, to, to survive. Um, I think what is important to take note is that some projects might work very well in some countries and will not work well in other countries, and this is important. And then um, you know, there's just stories, you know, for example, here in Virginia, where I live, there at the Hampton Roads up, up on the coast of Virginia at the naval base near Norfolk, there was a series of tunnels which were put under um, the, the sound there to ensure that traffic could move through. They can't put in bridges for strategic importances because if there was a war and an enemy bombed bridges, they would collapse into the sound and then the U.S. Navy wouldn't be able to deploy its forces. This contract was signed for 99 years, and it's incredible that people just have never heard of a 99-year contract. And you know, when we talk about risk allocation and assumptions that are being made, I'm not sure how that will ever work out because we don't even seem to know these days what's going to happen in five years' time. So we'll have to see what happens with that type of project. I think the challenge that people are concerned about are mega projects now. These are projects in billions of dollars because the contract terms have to be 30, 40, 50 years to recoup the costs. costs. 
um, in Africa and emerging countries, smaller PPP projects that focus specifically on healthcare, I think are being more successful. And one emerging sector definitely that is going to do well because of the post-COVID-19 um, period or era, whatever we want to call it, is definitely going to be digital infrastructure as PPPs. That's a user pay type PPP. It works very well because users are used to the idea that if they use internet or if they use telephones or if they use um, Wi-Fi or anything, that they pay for that. So there is a guaranteed revenue. No one expects to get Wi-Fi free. With water projects, a lot of people might expect that you know the water falls from the sky, so it must be free. Why am I paying for it? And then they protest. David, it was really interesting to hear about airports. Uh, you, you singled airport projects out as... Um, well, as, as being with some of the mo more successful um, PPPs, uh, I, I'm originally from Puerto Rico and the, the main airport there uh, was um, basically uh, put under new management a few years ago. Uh, under the, the PPP model, they brought in uh, a Mexican airport operator to to manage this um the the airport which which is um of course ultimately still a, a public facility my understanding um is that in, in the US the 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 model has not been used widely for for airports but um at least based on what i've heard it, it is more more common in other parts of the world and I can't really give you a, a, a personal opinion. I, I think I've only used the airport once since they started the PPP, but the general consensus seems to be that it has brought up, uh, brought about considerable improvements in, in the quality of the facilities and the services. I'd like to turn now to, to the health sector, obviously, you know, at, at this moment, that's, first and foremost in, in just about everyone's mind. And I was uh, wondering if you could tell us a little bit about notable PPPs in the, in the health space. Um, and also with specific regard to COVID-19, uh, are there any PPPs um, in the pipeline to, to help deal with this particular problem and perhaps more broadly, maybe you could you could tell us a little bit about what you think could be done that perhaps is is not being planned at the moment uh, using the PPP model to help governments uh, better handle the, the ongoing pandemic. Well, that's a good question. Um, so one of the countries, and I've been collaborating with the PPP Center of Excellence in Istanbul for six years now. Um, they are you know based in Turkey. If you don't know that Istanbul's in Turkey. And the, um, the government there has had a very successful and a very, very focused program on healthcare PPPs. What is very interesting about um, Turkey is that they don't have enabling legislation or an enabling environment for PPPs per se for the whole country, but certain ministries have developed their own laws and regulations. And Turkey has done this very well. And what they have done is they've started a program to build provincial hospitals that um, basically in 27 provinces at the last count I heard, which were being operated as PPPs, 
The model was very interesting because the private sector partner was responsible specifically for building the facility and maintaining and operating it, but not providing the healthcare services. So if you went to the hospital, the, the building was built by the private sector. If you went to the cafeteria and you had something, if you used the parking lot, you did anything like that. This was all done by the operator, but the actual healthcare activities inside the hospital, visits with doctors and nurses and clinicians, um, which were clinical staff, um, you know, if you were occupying a hospital bed, you'd, the, the government didn't own the bed, but when the nurse came to you, it was a government official. And the reason they did that was because Turkey has a pretty good um, national healthcare insurance program. And so the government basically took a lot of the risk away by, um, you know, taking care of the medical side and letting the private sector focus on the operations and maintenance and the building the facilities and keeping them up and running. And you can understand with modern hospitals, that is quite a daunting task. I mean, I think in most hospitals these days, the vast majority of the staff that are there are not medical team members, but they are engineers, um, maintenance crews, etc. So that was the model that worked there. Um, other countries that have been very focused on exploring um, healthcare PPPs, Saudi Arabia. I worked on a project in Saudi Arabia with the health ministry and the King Faisal Hospital, and they were exploring opportunities um, under the Crown Prince's 2030 vision of finding ways to, um, in a post sort of fossil fuel era, to make government uh, ministries and organizations and assets much more, um, yeah, um, how would you call it, successful and not reliant on government subsidies. So they have had a very aggressive program at looking at healthcare products, a project, sorry. The scale can vary between countries. I mean, a typical hospital in the United States, I think would cost, you know, a very large campus could cost a billion dollars. In some smaller countries, you know, tens of millions do quite well. When I worked with the Millennium Challenge Corporation as a consultant, they had a very good healthcare project that they were looking at in Lesotho at just not focusing on a national hospital as such, but providing local mini hospitals or, or local clinics, if you could call it that. And many of these types of projects, not specifically in Lesotho, but many countries have been considered as um, you know, potential PPP projects. The challenge is that the smaller the project, the less interest there is because the transactional costs and the legal fees to launch these projects can be extremely high. As we move forward you know, into this COVID-19 era and the changes that have taken place, I think healthcare is going to become a more and more important um, consideration. And it might even displace you know, priorities that governments had previously under the, the SDG, the Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 goals, and could result in prioritization. I think we have to look at PPP type activities and partnerships in three levels in the short term, the medium term, and the long term. And the short term, I think, would be sort of more the less structured type of public-private partnerships, which I would just call partnerships between the public and the private sector, which might be philanthropic in nature. You know, the big foundations which are helping healthcare institutions to cope with the crisis as it is now. So these could be collaborations, you know, with the, you know, the 
that which cook with Microsoft, it could be collaborations with the Rockefeller Foundation. You know, the, the, there are many examples of that, and that's to address the immediate crisis. But these aren't sustainable type of partnerships because they are often based on goodwill and they're not contractual. But as we start looking towards the medium and the long term, and the medium, I would say the next two to three years, and the long term, you know, twenty years down the path. Um, and we are faced with the likelihood that COVID-19 is going to become an annual event and it could be COVID-2021 you know, 20, as we go down. This is critically important to consider in public-private partnerships because public-private partnerships for big services or large infrastructure can easily be contracts for 25, 30 years plus. And this means that there are going to be repeat incidents that could threaten the sustainability and resilience of PPP projects, because in a 20 to 30 year time period, you know it's going to happen again. And so people are looking very carefully now at what type of projects could be done, reprioritizing them, and then also, you know, taking great concern now into sort of the pandemic definition and how this impacts force majeure clauses in contracts because it kind of was just flitted over in the past. People didn't really ever think these things were going to happen, so force majeure was just not very well defined in contracts. This is going to become critically important, and I think what we're going to see in strategies now in the medium and the long term, there are going to be greater needs and desires for sustainable projects and resilient projects, and by that I mean projects that can cope with unexpected changes, because if this is not built into the contractual expectations and deliverables for PPP projects, there's going to be a hard time raising the financing for them. Um, I know the insurance industry is very apprehensive at this moment about force majeure, and that's definitely going to filter down onto um, PPP projects because if um, PPP projects can't be insured, the interest rates being charged by parties would be so um, high that... Um, they wouldn't be what they call bankable. They, no one would invest in them. Specific type of projects that I think might have a great future that exist um, include, um, or that could be considered, you know, include things like you know, national emergency centers that could be run as PPPs, because especially in the United States, we've seen there's been really no coordination. Or if there has been coordination, it's been haphazard. One of the things that I have, you know, discussed with many people is the idea of, you know, having warehouses, for example, where strategic supplies of medical um, goods could be kept or supplies. And these could be partnerships between the government and the private sector, where the government owns the warehouse, but the private sector or producers of, for example, PPEs and things like that, could store the materials in these warehouses and just build up a surplus that there's always a surplus of three months, for example, of, um, of uh, what you call it, goods that are stored there. So that if we have another event, we have a strategic um, backlog of goods. So I think, you know, the opportunities are there. I think what is really important, though, is to consider what can we do now to improve things, take these opportunities and turn them into great um, situations, not dwell on the present. Um, you know, woe unto me is not a good strategy. And in the sense of PPP projects that have stalled, 
this is a wonderful chance to upgrade them and improve them. And I know you asked about healthcare, but one thing that's important and a good consideration, for example, with airport projects, you know, there's multitudes of activities that take place at airports. And one of the biggest challenges is maintenance of runways and facilities because there's always traffic. And I've heard now numbers of airports are considering this as a godsend that now that there's no traffic, they can speed up the construction of new runways, revitalize them, improve them. And in that way, it keeps the public-private partnership partnership strong because both parties have something to do. And in that sense, it is beneficial to the private sector as well because they would be engaged in a project and not just um, be seen as asking for handouts. David, you've given us some excellent insights into, especially with all COVID still on everyone's mind, deciding how to move forward. I think your your insights are, are very timely and uh, and also appreciate the optimistic tone as well. I tend to be on the optimistic side and always looking at how to improve a bad situation. Um, I think that uh, we're lucky to have you as part of the part of the global team working on ways that the public and private can work together in the future, especially to address. Uh, what we think will be these kinds of recurring health crises. Now, we love to educate our audience, and frankly, Fred and I derive a lot of personal benefit out of these interactions as well with our guests. We'd love to hear your recommendations for things you've read, listened to, watched lately uh, that uh, would help keep our audience informed about PPP works um, and also just kind of generally about things that you're interested in on the international stage. Could you share a few of those with us? Sure. So, you know, I, I think I should have been an academic and not a, a, a practitioner of PPPs. I did have, obviously, as you heard earlier on, some experience of teaching at a university for a number of years. But I've always had an inquiring mind and looked for, you know, sources of information. What I have done, which has been very helpful to me, is I've, you know, subscribed to a number of news feeds. So, for example, the Bloomberg News. They always have interesting things that, that makes me think. And just today, there were two very interesting articles in Bloomberg, one which was called Getting Ready for Tsunami of Pandemic Lawsuits. And that really touched on a lot of the things that I've been looking for. And I wrote a blog on it. Um, and I am a prolific blogger. My wife says I should get a life, but I enjoy it. And um, I you know, write constantly on LinkedIn and what happens to, is really nice is that people often, you know, then engage with you and read your LinkedIn articles and start asking questions from all over the world and audiences that you didn't ever expect that you would have. So in those instances, that has helped me enter into dialogue with experts around the world, sharing ideas. They will often forward me information. Just today, I had a conversation with a gentleman from Ethiopia where they launched a new PPP law, and he's a professor at the university. And we had a wonderful discussion on the PPP guidelines, laws that have been issued, and the pros and cons, the weaknesses, and the strengths. So that's another way of, of making it work. I also subscribe, for example, to specifically, you know, to the World Bank Group's um, newsletters that come out. So this is the um, IMF, the, IM, the IFC, and the World Bank itself. And then they also have, when you join that sort of network of that subscription network, you can also click on um, buttons which allow you to then to get feeds from the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development, the 
the EU organizations, the Asian Development Bank, and the list goes on, and also the, you know, the African um, Development Bank. And what I have done also is, you know, engage with people that I've met at conferences, um, take part in webinars and, and podcasts like this, this event, to have discussions. And before you know it, if you're not careful, you could be overwhelmed with sources of information. Um, I would also say for those who are really interested in deep diving into PPPs, you know, go to organizations like the World Bank's PPIAF site and have a look there. They have wonderful resources whenever I need a reference document or if I go there. And the most exciting thing about so much of the donor organizations and the banks is that their electronic library content is free. And so, you know, search, look for it, find out, you know, if you have LinkedIn contacts and you missing something, you can't find it, you don't know where to reach out to them. But that's generally what I would do. And you know, this is kind of the sad thing, I suppose, of my life. But I would think I'd do that for about the first two hours of every day when I'm not on the road, that I, you know, look for news feeds, new information, new ideas. And, you know, I let it, you know, just stick in my head. And then often, usually at like two o'clock in the morning, something goes off my head and I quickly grab my pen and write on a notepad Then the idea for the next blog or for the next engagement. So there are many, many opportunities there. But starting with the donors and the World Bank institutions and the other development banks is a good starting point. Two biggest focuses that I've had, and this is a result of many organizations around the world reaching out to me, has been a concern about you know, the force majeure elements on contract provisions for PPP contracts. And then also, you know, exploring what sustainability really means and what resilience really means because so many people talk about sustainability but they don't talk about resilience at the same time or vice versa and those two can't exist with without each other and then you know one organization and i don't want to push organizations as such but is the wappp that i belong to which is the world association of um, public private partnership units and practitioners what is very exciting about that, it's a forum where you can enter into debates with members, discuss ideas, and it's just amazing the ideas that people are coming from. And, and what is important, it's, it brings the public and the private sector together into a, into a forum where they can discuss common challenges, common ideas. And the thing that I'm really looking forward, looking for are solutions and not feeling sad about the current situation. You know, it's interesting that many organizations are launching these big investigations on what is the impact of coronavirus on PPPs. But we all know it's detrimental, bad, et cetera, and that it would be great if people started focusing on what are the solutions and what are the opportunities and what lessons have we learned so that we can design, build, produce, however you want to call it, better PPPs. And Fred, what about you? What have you been into lately? Well, Jonathan, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts these days, probably more than usual. And I'd like to recommend one of them, um, Dan Carlin's Common Sense, and in particular, the most recent episode, number 319, A Recipe for Caesar. Um, some of our listeners might be familiar with Dan Carlin. He was really active. Um, I would say about four or five years ago, he's been podcasting for, for a very long time. Uh, he actually has two podcasts, one called Hardcore History, which focuses, of course, on, on 
historical topics. And then he has another one, which is the one I'm recommending, uh, called common sense. Um, in the aftermath of the, the last general election, Dan Carlin sort of took a sabbatical. Um, he, as he explained in, 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 on the podcast, you know, he was having some, some real issues, um, making, making sense of, of some of what was going on. Um, he, for, for a very long time, you know, the way he put it was that for a very long time, he, he really wanted to see a departure from business as usual, but he was a little bit troubled by what actually happened when we got something a little bit different. Um, but he's, he's, um, he's trying once again and the, the result, which dropped last month, uh, was actually, was actually classic Dan Carlin of sort of objective middle of the road, um, uh, view at, at, at the current environment. So highly encourage everyone to, to listen not only to this episode, but pretty much to anything that Dan Carlin has put out, um, in, in both of his podcasts, even picking out something from a few years back, it's, it's bound to be relevant. What about you, Jonathan? I'd like to recommend a book called The Gambler by William C. Rempel. It's a biography about a very little-known tycoon named Kirk Kerkorian. He was an Armenian immigrant who died in 2015. And it really is a rags-to-riches uh, story, you know, darling story uh, in the United States, as we like to think that you can go from nothing to something in, in a lifetime. And, and this bears out. He was, uh, I think he was dropped out of school by the time he was in eighth grade. Uh, selling newspapers on the street, and uh, he became a boxer, uh, a pilot, a poker player, and uh, eventually built Las Vegas into what it is today. You know, he he bought and sold, uh, bought, sold, and built hotels. You know, famous ones that uh, that you know of, and he even bought and sold MGM Studios three times. And uh, it's very so. It's very much. A, it's very capitalistic focus, right? It's kind of a you can do anything with money if you get enough money. Um, but it's also a, a really interesting look at how to make uh, calculated decisions and take risks. Uh, I think my favorite quote from him in the book was, anything that can be solved with money is not a problem. Um, so a very capitalistic look at life, but uh, interesting take on on what you can do when you when you believe that you can you can make a deal happen in any situation. David, I want to thank you for spending time with us today. Thoroughly enjoyed uh, every bit of time we had with you, and we're looking forward to speaking with you more in the future. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. And I would be willing to or be excited to participate in future podcasts and have a great week yourself. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue to discuss developments in global law and business. And tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.